Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Courageous Conversations. Uh, today, Greg Fontes is joining me, and we're going to have what I think is going to be a really fascinating discussion. Um, and it's going to be talking about, I guess we'll say, self-righteousness and the self-righteousness phenomenon. Basically, it's this thing that happens to human beings. Whenever you learn something, you have an awakening, and you, you come to live your own life by a high set of standards. Oftentimes that focus and that fervor that you're pouring into holding yourself accountable to this high standards of living ends up getting misdirected and redirected at other people who aren't living according to those high standards. And you start acting like a real jerk to those people, right? So I have seen this happen a lot in the progressive left side, side of things where let's just use you know the example from 2020, folks like myself, white people who were more or less blind and ignorant to racism, the realities of racism uh, up until 2020, we start seeing the protests, we go to Google, we get ourselves educated, we go, oh my God, holy crap. And now we can set ourselves woke. And then immediately the first thing we do is we turn on everyone else around us who doesn't know the same things, who isn't in the same place, who's still blind. And we start acting like a real royal jerk to them for their ignorance, forgetting that, but three months ago we were in the exact same place, right? And I realized that that's similar to what can happen, unfortunately, sometimes in some religious groups. So I was raised in, in, in the Christian church, and I saw a lot of that, where people would hold themselves to these high moral standards of biblical teachings and start being real jerks to people who weren't holding themselves to those same standards, whether they're people within the church who had different interpretations of, of what needed to be done, what was okay, what wasn't, or people who weren't even Christians. Um, and I realized, you know, you can even probably find examples in other areas, right, where people have this code of conduct they live that they hold themselves to and then they start being real jerks to other people so greg thanks for joining us explain a little bit of your background and maybe your experience with this phenomenon um and then we'll kind of get into maybe comparing this phenomenon in all the different areas in life and that it shows up sure thing thanks for having me john i'm really grateful to be a part of this conversation uh talking on this very interesting and critical topic right something that i have many of us you uh, have experiences dealing with this. For me, um, um, I share a different, couple of different spaces where I see this work um, coming into play. In one context, I am a diversity education, uh, equity and inclusion consultant. I have my own practice, Defonce's Experience, where I seek to help empower and work with organizations to be inclusively excellent. And so I do diversity and inclusion from a strategy lens, from a training education lens, from a coaching lens and consulting lens. Um, um, but also, in addition to that, I also serve as a pastor in a Christian church, and I've been pastoring in pastoral context for for just about six, seven years, give or take. Um, and so I love doing that work, love meeting people where they are, love uh, spiritually encouraging, empowering different congregations and communities as it relates to this work. Um, you know, some of my initial thoughts as we're, you know, beginning and partaking in this conversation. You know, a lot of this, in my opinion, um, in my experience, really has to do with the uh, search for identity of people, yeah. right? I think on one end, you know, individuals will have a particular mindset, particular perspective about things. And then, like you mentioned, three months later, now they're seeing things in a different context, a different lens. And now they're putting down those people who have those same mindsets. They're, they're, they've, they've gone from being the victim to now the oppressor, the, the critiquer, the judger, if you will. And I think a lot of that really has to do with one search for identity of really answering the question, which is a very theological rooted question of who am I? 
who, where, where do I come from? What do I believe? How do I see things? And, and that's what they're searching for. And in that search of things, when there's a failure to fully embrace that identity of who you are, or there's a full, there's a lack of full understanding about it, then there comes insecurities to that or there's a failure to embrace and to deal with the insecurities that are existing within oneself. So when there's a failure to uh, deal with the insecurities or the lack of acknowledgement that insecurities exist, then some of those challenges and critiques towards others occur. Then it now goes from it being something that was productive or that is productive to something that's unhealthy, something that is that warrants behaviors that are actually antithetical to the ideas of religion, ideas of, of community, of belonging, of inclusion. Um, and so in my experience, it's really about that identity piece of searching for who you are and not yet answering or having an answer to that question in a holistic sense. Not in the sense of, I know who Greg Fontis is, but I know who Greg Fontis is in relation to those who are around me, those in, that I'm in community with. Just that last sentence there give me a thought, not really relevant to this episode, but thinking about identity of who I am versus identity of who I am in relationship to other people. I'm going to be thinking on that for a very interesting way to look at identity. Um, so I'm curious, when it comes to members of the Christian church, who again, hold themselves to a very high moral standard, and when they see other fellow Christians around them not hold themselves to the same high moral standard, and they can be, you know, we'll say it, jerks, right? Um, is that is that more common in more recent converts? Is that more common in lifelong Christians? Is it totally across the board, evenly distributed? What have you noticed? Ah, oh, man, that's that's a good question. I think for me, I, I've noticed it in more uh, lifelong, you mm -hmm. know, Christians, those who have been in in the faith, quote unquote, for centuries, or you know, maybe third generation, fourth generation. It's something that they they're they're very orthodox in their approach or in their experience. Um, they, they've gone to you know, church weekly, they've gone through maybe even church school, whatever have you. I, I've seen it yeah. in that regard. Um, but then I've also seen it in those who uh, may be recent uh, converts, if you will, but recent in the sense of this is something that's new, but the way that it was introduced to me was something that was, it wasn't a process for me to transition or convert. Mm -hmm. It was more so I've had this, you know, you know, for example, um, using a, the biblical story of the apostle Paul, right? At yeah. one point he was Saul who was this, you know, uh, you know, this, this Roman leader who was sort of this uh, persecutor of the Jews, if you will. He's in, on, in route to, to the city and while he's en route to that, he has this flashing, this moment coming to Jesus moment. And then next thing you know, literally in three days, now he's this, this pro Jesus guy, he's converted to Paul and now he's, he's all about God, right? So he really had this, this, this going to Damascus in three days, he's transitioning. Now he's this full transitional Christian, right? Certain Christians I've heard, I've known that have had some of these challenges or more of these critiques have that type of experience to where in one moment they have this coming to Jesus moment and then now they're this particular way. Whereas I've learned that I don't oftentimes see it from individuals who's had a longer conversion experience to where yeah. their conversion experience was one in which they 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 began to think about this. They began to uh, have conversations with 
people. They begin to ask questions about their own understanding and why things are the way they were. And when they've had that slow walking uh, conversion experience, they've made the conscious decision, I'm going to transition because of X, Y, Z. It wasn't necessary, it was, so it's based off not just knowledge, but conviction, but uh, emotional impetus, et cetera. It wasn't just make you know uh, a transition based off immediacy, based off impetus, based off the moment, if yeah. that makes sense. So I've oftentimes seen it in those two extreme contexts of those who have been lifelong, you know, um, uh, parishioners, lifelong individuals who have been part of a congregation of uh, a Christian faith denomination, but then also those who've had those impetus, almost immediate experiences. Not all. Now, I want to I want to put that as a caveat. Not all. Of course, yeah. It's just it's just some that I've seen in my own experience. So it almost seems like, you know, if it's it's an empathy thing where it's hard for someone who hasn't personally experienced life that way to empathize with someone who mm -hmm. isn't experiencing life that way. So yeah, you get that in the, the dual cases of I was always following the path. So I really don't know what it's like to live life not following the path. And in the case of, you know, just flip the switch, drop of a hat, made an instant switch. Um, it's hard to really empathize with someone who maybe is in that in-between zone. Um, hmm, I can see that. And again, uh, it probably is a parallel when it comes to, to any area, right? So back to the, you know, leftist progressive politics, right? I don't know, but it would make sense to me that you'd see a lot of that out of, you know, lifelong leftists. Um, and then the folks mm -hmm. who had their, you know, great awakening because of the protests of 2020 and instantly flipped the switch from blind to racism to, you know, uh, you know, fully enthusiastic ally. Um, yeah. Because again, it, does, it, it, does, it really does seem like, again, it's the same phenomenon. It's like, I've had my eyes open and I'm now making choices to live differently. And now because of that, mm -hmm. I noticed that you are not making those same choices. And it really rankles me <laughs> when I see that you're not mm -hmm. making the same choices. Um, why do you think people forget so quickly that they were there before in the case of those who, you know, who obviously were there before? Yeah, that, that is, that is a heavy question. And it's a heavy question because my response is, I, I'll say it as this. A lot of times you forget when due to a lack of understanding of religion, of what is even Christian, right? What is, what is the purpose of this idea, this concept, this, this practice that, that is beholden to many, that many hold as sacred? I think that when we have a mindset that Christianity is really about what you do, not about who you are seeking to emulate and to... Um, sort of commune with, then you get this gray area. Then you get this challenge of forgetfulness. What I mean by that is oftentimes the perspective and the lens about Christianity is really about what you do. It's about going to church. It's about how you're treating others. It's really about uh, your daily devotion and practice. It's really about these things you're trying to acquire, things that you're doing, right? That's how it's been framed the ideal of Christianity. And I think that is a very traditional way of thinking. Whereas if you think about, well, what is the root of Christianity? And I'm, and I'm keeping in packet to the Christian context. I'm a Christian minister. And so I don't want to necessarily, we can stray outside of that, don't get me wrong. But, but in my response to this, as you relate, as we're talking about those are part of the Christian denomination, I want to keep it in packet to that. Uh, when you think about what Christianity is, right? The word 
Christian in its Greek um, understanding is the word Christianos, right? Which means to be like the anointed one. And it's essentially the anointed one is talking is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, right? And so we have to understand that Christianity in its purest form is actually one's ability to be reminiscent, to live like the anointed one of Jesus. There's two distinguishments that I just made, right? Our own mindset of what in this urban modern day context of what Christianity is, is to do something. Yeah. Whereas the origination of the form of Christian was to be like someone. To do and then to be like someone are two separate points, okay? So you forget what you used to believe when the mindset has always been, this is what I'm doing. This is what I need to do. But when we're recognizing what I'm trying to be like, that's a different mindset because you're striving to be like Jesus. And when you think about the life of Jesus, Jesus loved those that made mistakes. Jesus loved those that faulted. Jesus loved the outcast of society and community. Jesus loved the poor. He loved the sick. He loved those that fell and got back up. He loved all of those individuals who were not living according to Jewish practices, according to Christian practices, et cetera, et cetera. So the issue that comes into play is going back to the identity problem of do you recognize who you are? Do you recognize that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Yes, we want to treat people well. We want to love people. We want to encourage people. We want to do all of those things. But we also recognize that part of who Jesus was and part of what Christianity is rooted in is the idea that we love people and we're, we're committed to treating people who have fallen with love, regardless of identity, regardless of race, gender, sexuality, particularity, etc. We are committed, radically committed to loving them and treating them well. You forget when we treat people, when we don't treat people well, you forgot the root of the ideal of Christianity. And Christianity has shifted from being from like the anointed one, Christ, to more so being like yourself. This is what I think. This is what I think. And so now I have this mindset of the way of, of judging and critiquing your point of view. I feel like I can do that regardless of whether there's a love, treating people nice component embedded in that. So you forget when you don't even have an understanding of what you're about, of what the ideal of Christianity is about. So I think that's where some of those challenges come. And that's where some of those challenges exist. It's simply based upon people not really following the core root of what Christianity is. It's people really following their ideas, which are embedded by so many different components. They're, they're embedded by societal norms and cultural practices. They're embedded by upbringing and how we're socialized to think a particular way. It's embedded by uh, uh, what we feel might be right. I don't know, let me guess and let me say this is what I feel in the moment. It's a fear of now wanting to be viewed as someone who is righteous and and viewed as someone who is above the law, in a sense, someone who's above doing anything that's wrong. Whereas Christianity is not a, a religion, in my opinion. It's not a religion for those who think they're righteous. It's really for a, a religion for those who have fallen and said, hey, I fell, but I'm still loved. 
and I'm trying to love other people as best as I can. That's the root of it, in my opinion. So different different threads from different parts of life are like coming together here. Um, mm-hmm. So one is interestingly enough, I guess the, the, the main theme here that you're saying that I'm, that I'm getting echoes of from other experiences of mine is that people do have this tendency to focus on what I do rather than focusing on who I am. I'm guessing it's just because doing is so much easier to observe. It's more concrete. It's a box you can check. It's not nuanced. It's very objective. Whatever the reason is, people love to focus on what I do mm-hmm. rather than who I am. So a couple of pieces come together, right? You just shared the Christian piece. Um, interestingly enough, James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits, which is about how to like build habits and break habits and stuff like that. Um, and one of the things he talks about is that if you're trying to build a habit, don't focus on the things you want to do, but rather what you want to be. So his advice is don't set a goal to, you know, run five times a week. Set a goal to create an identity for yourself where you are a runner and running is what you do. And regardless of whether it's five times a week or twice a week or what happens, you are a runner and it just feels off if you don't run and it just feels right when you do run. Similarly, I'm guessing in your DEI practice, a lot of companies who are new to the DEI journey probably come to you with that same mindset. Okay, Greg, give us a list. What do we do? Rather than, mm-hmm. okay, Chris, you know, Greg, what should we become? Are you finding that's true when people start in the DEI path? Absolutely. Absolutely. The focus is on this very reactive nature or this uh, this very action-ited, action-itemed, oriented focus of, hey, we've had this incident. This is what we're trying to do. Help us get to this point of where we're trying to do things. And I can very much do that. I can very much help you get to that point. But we have to do some of that internal cultural work, that internal assessing, hey, who are we as an organization? So that's why I focus a lot on strategy development and strategy assessment. I'll come in and I'll work on doing an org assessment with a particular company to really discover the very nature of your identity. Who are you? Sure, you may want to be this company that is operating on all levels of inclusion. But if the when the if I assess your organization and it's giving me a different narrative, I have to address that first in order for me to get to that place where I want to get to. Because if I focus on just the action, if I focus on just the doing piece, that's band-aids. That's putting, putting that's me putting a band-aid on the root of the problem, on the challenges that really exist. And if I don't deal with the challenge, then it's always going to be a band-aid. But if I deal with the challenges and I deal with it and I and I, I pull back the scab, I put some ointment on it, we do some treatment on that scab and we work on that, you're going to be an organization that's going to be in a much better position than if I did not do that. And it's not going to, the, the issues won't be reoccurring issues. The issues that will come up eventually later down the road will be issues you know how to deal with simply because you've dealt with the root. You've dealt with the trust. You've dealt with the, the uh, you've reconciled between identities and genders. You've dealt with some of those challenges. You've healed from it as best as we can and we've moved forward with it. So so that's what I would say. Like, yeah, when I deal with or I do, I, I hear that all the time. That's the first thing they want. How do we get to this point where we do this? Wait, wait, let's pause and let's get to the root of the issue. Right. Because and the thing is, many don't want to deal with what the root of the issue is because they don't want to face the fact that they're not where they need to be. You don't want to face it. Right. You don't want to face that you have employees, a part of your organization who are angry. You don't want to face the reality that you all have a psychological safety problem. 
in your organization. You don't want to face the fact that the leadership that you put in place or individuals that are on your board uh, um, of directors are individuals who are oppressive in nature or, or perpetuate oppressive systems and practices within your organization. You don't want to deal with that. So you want to put band-aids on. So this is really interesting. So maybe I'm, I'm reading too far into this and misinterpreting, but it almost sounds like you're suggesting part of the reason people tend to focus on the do, give me a checklist, is because they don't feel like they are who they want to be. And they don't really want to face the fact that they aren't who they want to be. And rather than facing the fact that whether it's my organization or my personal self, I am not Christ-like or my organization is not a DEI-focused organization, it's almost easier to say, well, just give me the list of things and I'll just do the things I need to do, right? And and that's almost easier than like really reckoning with who really am I? Because again, in the Christian case, it's really hard for someone to really feel like I am Christ-like. And there may be a lot of guilt and a lot of insecurity and a lot of shame wrapped up in there that they aren't who they're supposed to be. And rather than deal with that, they're like, you know what? Just give me a checklist of things I'm not supposed to do, okay? I'm going to stop doing this, stop doing this, start doing this, and now I'm good. Would you say that's mm -hmm. true for why people shift into checklist thinking rather than, you know, identity thinking? Absolutely. Absolutely. And not just because it's easier, but the determinant of what an inclusive organization or what a Christian looks like is what's the checklist, right? They, they write the checklist of, hey, this is what it's supposed to be like. And they write this, they write this, and they say, this is what Christianity is. It's this checklist, or this is what an inclusive organization looks like. It's this checklist. And that's great and all, but you got to get to the root of it. Right. I'll say something that, you know, may blow your mind. It may, may, whether, I don't know, I don't know how you'll take it, but it is what it is, um, especially in the, in the Christian context. Right. You know, oftentimes we consider the 10 commandments, right. Um, as the, the pinnacle of what Christianity is. Okay. Let's, let's look at what does it look like to be a Christian? So we'll look at the, the 10 commandments. Thou should not have any other gods before me. And all of these other things, right? That 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 flow, right? We'll look at those things. But if you look at that passage, right, when because this in this context, this is where um Moses, you know, he leads the children of Israel out of bondage, out of Egypt, uh, and then they're in this desert, and God gives him this this Ten Commandments, right? But here's the thing that that we miss from that entire narrative, right? Before God gives him the Ten Commandments, right before it, God tells Moses, I am the God, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. I brought you out of bondage. Therefore, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. He then begins to communicate what those Ten Commandments are. Why do I bring that up? Because we've missed something. We've immediately, and you can look at it, if you go to any, you go to Walgreens, CVS, any local grocery store, any, any store, and you buy a Ten Commandments thing, you're going to see that it starts off by just listing what the Ten Commandments were. Sure. But we, we forget and we miss that there is a preamble to that of what God did. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because the commandments, the checklist is actually the response to what God did. So therefore, when we're sitting here saying, hey, let's do the checklist of what DEI is, actually, no, the checklist of DEI is actually in response to the core values of your organization. 
The Ten Commandments is actually the core, the, the checklist to the core value of your intimacy connection with God. So it's not the root of that. It's actually the byproduct. The checklist is the byproduct. The commandments, the action items of Christians are the byproduct of the central Christianos, the central root of one's relationship with God. So, so for me, when I think about, you know, organizations that I work with in the DEI space, congregation, con parishioners that I work with in the ministry space, sure, the mindset is, what, I, what do I have to do? That's, you've missed the mark. Because when you realize the core value, the value will then pr pr produce certain actions which when you assess it on the back end, you'll realize, oh my goodness, I was actually following along the core principles of, of Christianity anyway. I was following the core principles of inclusion and belonging anyway, when I look at it on the back end. So, so we, we missed the mark. We, we focus so much on the checklist and the do, but when we focus on the core root then, and we fix that and we get that in a right mindset. It'll produce what the checklist is. It'll produce it. So it you know, ties back to the initial, you know, theme of the episode. So this kind of self-righteous behavior, this being a jerk to people who aren't living the standards of behavior, this comes as, as a symptom of someone over-focusing on the checklist without doing the kind of identity work first. It's mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. and one other thing I want to kind of throw by you to get your thoughts on. So in many areas of life, we find that human beings strive for efficiency. You could also call it laziness, where we're like, we don't do more than we have to, right? In a lot of areas. However, mm -hmm. when it comes to like meddling other people's business and getting really upset that other people aren't living up to your standards, a lot of people put a lot of extra effort out that really doesn't seem to yield them anything in return. You find yourself wondering, why are you going to these great lengths, right? Like that's not efficient at all, right? That's so much effort. <laughs> so oftentimes my rule of thumb is when I see what appears to be an outsized reaction, where you see this reaction, you're like, why is it such a big reaction? It's usually defensive mm -hmm. in nature. People rarely produce really outsized reactions purely aggressively. It's usually defensive when you get the outsized reactions. So that leads me to think that this tendency to be really hypercritical and judgmental and a jerk to someone who's not living up to your standards um, is somehow defensive in nature, but maybe that's totally wrong. Can you think of any way that being a jerk to someone who's not living up to your standards would be a defensive thing? <laughs> it, 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 it's a defensive thing when, um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's a funny one because that's like an age old question of like, how, why do people do that? Right? <laughs> I don't have the answer to that, right? Why do people do it? People just do it just to do it. Um, I don't know why, but I think we, we just take, there's a human nature, right? I think this is just a human nature to want to feel better than the other person or want to feel mm -hmm. like you're successful uh, or to want to feel like, like, like you're <laughs> not them. Like I'm here, that's there, right? We, we, we tend to operate in the right and the wrong, the left and the right, the, the red and the blue, right? That's how we operate. What we have to realize actually we're, we're more so operating in the gray, in the middle. Yeah. Because there are good people, great people out there that can do harmful things. And there's people who are harmful and just horrible, terrible people who do amazing and beautiful things we have to realize we're actually more so living in the gray. So because we, we like to operate either on the farther extremes of the right or the left, the red and the blue, the left, the right, et cetera, et cetera, we have the tendency to say, oh, no, that's on the other side. I, have, I don't want to have no part in that or what they do. 
and what they act like. So I'm going to be all the way on this side. Whereas we fail to realize they're actually you're one and the same because your behavior of putting someone down is actually no better than their own action of what you deem inappropriate. Especially if you don't have any authority and no one actually no one has any authority to put anyone down but but especially when when you know that you've done that before and now you're this person trying to be the the you're this person with this quote-unquote new moral compass that's not okay i remember when um i was in seminary uh, uh one of my new testament professors would say at the end of the year, I, I, I love this professor. I studied under her, was a TA for her. Uh, she would often say, use theology for good. At the end of the day, me making a theological point or con my theological conviction and belief and promotion should never be at the degradation of someone else's. It should never be that way because that is antithetical to the Christian gospel, that is antithetical to the Christian ethic. It, it's, 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 it's in opposition to everything that I'm saying. So for me, if, if I have a differences in, in opinion than you, John, right? And if, I, if, if you say something and I'm like, man, you're totally off. I may, very, I may believe that, but then judging you on that makes me no better than the very thing I hated about what you said. It makes me no better. It makes me no better. So for me, I have to understand that what I promote, what I speak theologically, uh, uh, you know, emotionally, what I think from my knowledge base, whatever comes out, I have to do it at the expense of, of no one. It shouldn't be done at the expense of making me feel better than you. It shouldn't be done at the because the moment I think of that, then what I've done is I've created class systems. The moment I think I'm better than you is I promoted classes to where my class of thinking is better and more appropriate than your class of thinking. And we all know how classism is the root of what racism is, which is also the root of oppression within this country. It's all intricately connected, right? So I, I cannot do that at you. So I have to find a space to where there is either a middle ground to where we both can come to a consensus or we both come, which is, can be simply the, we coming to the place where we say, John, you believe the way that you believe, Greg, I believe the way that I believe, we completely disagree, but we can still coexist. We can still find a space where your opinion, I may not agree with it, but I validate it. My, my opinion, you may not agree with it, but it's validated by you and we can coexist in that. Yeah. Because it doesn't harm either or. So I've got a, uh, an idea I want to run by you, see what you think of it, um, to kind of explain this. And maybe it, maybe it falls in the category of, of, you know, something that's defensive in nature. Um, but a lot, I think my theory as to why when someone's holding themselves to a high standard and they see other people not holding themselves to the same high standard, it can cause some problems, is that for most people in particular, to your point, if they haven't done the identity work, um, but even if you have an identity work, it's it's hard to hold yourself to a high moral standard, right? The high moral standard can be again religious values. This could be liberal progressive values. Hell, this the high moral standard could be like how you treat your body and the fact that you like don't eat you know high fructose corn syrup and eat a vegan diet. Like whatever that high standard is, in order to stay to that, 
we all have to have a certain amount of monitoring and defense in our mind. For example, if I'm a vegan, if I decide I wanted to go vegan and I start having a craving for meat, I have to quickly turn on a defense mechanism that says, nope, here's why we don't do that. Here's why it's wrong. And we have to squash that meat craving with all these beliefs and feelings about how wrong meat is, right? Or again, if you're a Christian, you decide to give up pornography and you start feeling in the mood for that, you have to like attack that thought and say, nope, here's the reason why I'm not doing that. It's bad for me. It's bad for the people involved. It's against God's laws. And you have to have this kind of system in your brain where when an urge comes up or a thought comes up, you have to kind of attack it with all these counterpoints and things. And you get really good at doing that, right? And again, you have to be especially good at doing this if you haven't done the internal work first um, to be able to hold yourself to the standard. So those mechanisms more or less serve us. And then what happens when we see someone else eating a piece of meat or saying that they're a Christian and they still watch pornography? Well, that same mechanism gets triggered, right? And we start going after them in the same way we go after ourselves, mm -hmm. right? We start attacking their beliefs and actions in the same way that we attack our own thoughts. So it's like this, this good mechanism that keeps us on the straight and narrow, right? Of whenever we have wayward thoughts, attacking them with counter arguments and beliefs and et cetera. But it's that same mechanism being misused and suddenly thrown at someone else who hasn't asked for it or given you, you know, uh, permission to use that mechanism on them. Is that a good explanation for what's going on in, in all these cases? Yeah. 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 I would, I would, I would argue and say, yeah, you know, I think we all have these defense mechanisms, these boundaries, you know, it's another word that people are quantified as, and we have all of these things that we impose on ourselves. And then when someone else triggers that, someone else is doing the same thing, we'd have a tendency to impose upon somebody else the very thing that we're, we're experiencing. And so it's our fragility, our brokenness, our insecurities wow. that we tend to impose upon somebody else at no fault of them, but it's really our issues that we have and we're putting it on them. That's not fair to them at all. Not fair to them at all but because we have those issues that we're wrestling with now. And, and, and we didn't communicate to the other person that we have those challenges. Now we tend to lash out and it tends to go in a direction that is counterproductive and it ends up causing more harm than it does, um, than it does help. So, so yeah, I think we have a tendency to do that quite often. Um, you think about just being in a particular workspace, for example, you know, someone coming in and, you know, someone coming in being told, someone who, who is a white person who is being told that, hey, in, in an external context that they're racist, right? Mm -hmm. Hypothetically. Now they come into the workspace. There may be a manager, mid-level mid manager. They may be overseeing a team. And now they're trying to just do the most. Now they're trying to, 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 to promote themselves as this woke person who is all about inclusion and belonging. And it comes off as inauthentic. And your employees are asking, well, why are you this way? Why are you imposing so many things on us? Like, like what did we do to you? When we don't, we failed to realize that they were actually in another space being told they were an oppressor, being told that they were not an ally, et cetera, et cetera. And what that did was now it sparked them to now want to impose and overcompensate towards someone else. It, it perpetuated the oppression. It perpetuated the pain simply because of something else, because internally their ego was fragile in that external space. So now they're trying to gain the power back, right? They're now trying to gain some sense of control and normalcy, quote unquote, and they impose it on a different space. It's that same idea, right? Someone comes, they trigger something in us. Now I have a tendency to put it out on them simply because of what, I, what I'm internally dealing with. Same concept. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's our own fragility, insecurity that causes us to kind of overcompensate, both overcompensating by like having some probably pretty harsh self-talk in our own heads, right? To keep ourselves on a straight and narrow, but then overcompensating and being, you know, really, really aggressive and, and uh, weeding out and attacking anything with bad we see in other people. That behavior doesn't come mm -hmm. from a place of strength and security, right? That behavior mm -hmm. from a place of some kind of insecurity, which again, back to the point that's been coming up a lot, is usually because they haven't done the internal work of really becoming who they want to be rather than just doing who they want, what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Absolutely. I guess the last thing I want to cover is how, how do we do this better? Right. So, you know, I'll use myself as a real life example. Um, this is something I've struggled with too much, but I could in the future. I used to have a terrible diet, eat terribly. I got very educated on the importance of diet and the impact of diet on not just like, your energy level and your immune system, but like literally some, almost every chronic condition we suffer from in the U S is caused or exacerbated by a poor diet. And like, I just really went down, read a lot of books, learned a lot. And now I more or less don't eat anything that's really bad for me. Right. Not that I'm perfect. Um, but I'm pretty much just eating whole foods and a lot of vegetables and stuff like that. And I see my, one of my siblings, right. Um, who I'm close to, he still eats like crap. Like I used to. And what I want to do is like, hold true to my beliefs of how I want to live my life when it comes to what I put in my body. I want to, if possible, have some kind of influence on him and bring him over to, to, to my way of living because I think he'll be better off if he does. But without crossing that line, we've just talked about this whole time about being that self-righteous prick, right? Who's, you know, really judgmental and harsh and mean and a jerk and like with someone for not living up to standards. So I guess the question is, how can you manage to do all three? Hold your own boundary and live your life your way have a positive impact on others and maximize the chance that they come over to your way of seeing things, but without crossing that line of being that self-righteous dick who people are like, wow, I don't even want to talk to him about my diet anymore because he's just constantly judging me over what I'm eating, right? And again, mm -hmm. you can take this context and apply it to religion or DEI or whatever. Any thoughts on mm -hmm. how, to, how to do it right, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think what comes to mind, and I think there's, I'm, I'm not the, you know, the sole barometer of what is right for that. Um, but what I say, what, what comes to mind is the power of choice, right? Still allowing there to be an agency of choice and one to still have the opportunity to self-select and self-determine. And so why, why that comes to mind or how that comes to mind in this context, you know, thinking of that example with you and your sibling, sure, they eat like crap in your opinion, right? And that may very well be true. But I think still giving them the opportunity to still eat like they want to eat, but still hold true to who you are, right? Like by creating a space where both of you can have what you want in a, in a, in a sense. So, for example, let's say, you know, it's uh, let's say it's Thanksgiving dinner, right? And he come, your sibling comes over to your 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 place and you know how your sibling eats. Your sibling doesn't eat anything for, I'm just, and I don't know the situation, but let's say your sibling doesn't eat anything like you do. But like, hey, just so you know, this is what's on the menu. I know that, you know, you eat a little bit differently than I do. Uh, what are some dishes that you would like for me to prepare or that you want to bring to be a part of this? You've given him the choice to eat what he wants. You've told him up front, told him up front this is what I have already. But by both of you bringing both of your items into the space, he's exposed to both. You don't have to eat what he wants, but he's exposed to both. 
same idea when it comes to just in the Christian theological space. It's the idea of, hey, I respect you and your ideas, right? And I can pay honor to that, right? I don't have to, me participating in your type of, of you know, and I'm thinking more cross-denominational, you know, in this response, me thinking sure. about your denomination and what you believe, hey, that's all good. You know, I honor it, I respect it, I respect your truth and I respect what you are, right? Um, but I'm gonna hold true to me, right? You know what I believe, I know what you believe, but we can still love each other, right? Because at the end of the day, right, what it, in my opinion, what it really comes down to is, is really valuing the person before what they, whatever they do. Whatever they do, you want them to, to live a particular way. You want them to do certain things. Sure, that you love the person and you, you would hope that they would catch along better. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to ostracize you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to treat you horribly because of that. Because I recognize that before that, you were made in the image of God, right? There's this theological concept, the Imago Dei, which essentially comes out of Genesis 1, where God creates the, you know, he creates humanity. God is saying, hey, let's make humanity in our, in our own image. Therefore, any person that you see, no matter what they look like, no matter their size, no matter what they put in their body, any person you come across is made in the same image you're made in. That's the image of God. And therefore, we treat people with that mentality. So therefore, you treat your brother, I treat people of different theological pe uh, uh, perspectives, I treat them as though they're made in the image of God, because that is what I hold true. And then whatever they do, at the end of the day, that's not my, I'm not a judge. I, I don't judge, God, God, that's God's job to judge and to determine and all of that stuff. That's not my responsibility to love you. My responsibility is to care for you. And sure, I care for you and I love you by not judging you by what you do. I may introduce things to you, right? I may understand that before I could, before I even judge you, I gotta get to know you first to even create a, 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 a relationship with you to be able to have the credibility to do so. Right? And I think sometimes we skip that step. We, we immediately critique before we have a relationship. I think it hits differently when it's your brother, it's your sibling where you can go to and say, hey, hey, I want you to think about eating this way. It hits differently when it's a sibling that you grew up with, as opposed to somebody that you have no idea, you only knew for a week. It's a different relationship that's built there. you know. And so I would, I would say, that continue to have that love factor of, of this person's created in the image of God, I'm created in the image of God, therefore that's what matters most. And because they're created in the image of God, let me build a relationship and rapport with them and then let the cards fall where they may fall later. But remember that what's more important than what they do is who they are. And I think everything you're sharing there, you know, is, is, is difficult to pull off when you're in that state where you haven't worked mm -hmm. on your own identity, where you're just like turning to a, a checkbox to make you feel better. Like, well, I must be a good Christian because I'm checking these boxes and I must be a healthy mm -hmm. person doing these things, even though I don't feel like that inside, even though I haven't mess taken the time to really wrestle with who I am. I'm just mm -hmm. going to checklist mm -hmm. these to kind of stand in instead. It's really hard to do what you're mm -hmm. suggesting you're in that state because that's a pretty fragile state to be in right and it's pretty easy to shake that mm -hmm. up and actually i think mm -hmm. that may cause people to be kind of defensive like i mentioned earlier if you're in that fragile state where you feel like you're barely holding on to this vegan thing or barely holding on to this being a good christian thing 
seeing someone else doing it wrong could mess you up and trip you off your game and send you down the wrong path, right? So maybe it is a defensive thing to lash out at other people who aren't doing the right things. So it mm -hmm. seems like if you want to do this right, the first step is really work on yourself and like, who am I? What do I want to be like? Mm -hmm. So again, whether it's mm -hmm. Who do I want to be when it comes to social justice? Who do I want to do, be when it comes to health, when it comes to religion? Really focus on that. Mm -hmm. Get yourself in a solid place where you know who you are, you know who you want to be, you know what you need to work on. And again, mm -hmm. to your point, the commandments just are, 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 are spring out of that as a, a byproduct mm -hmm. of that initial work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I would even say, you know, even if for those who have not done the work, being authentic and and real and honest with where you are is also helpful. Hmm. Hey, I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. Hey, I recognize I may have said something that may not have been the best and I may have come off as defensive, but that's because I'm working on it. I'm, I'm struggling with it. It has nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with me. That transparency goes a long way. Sometimes we're not we're not transparent with our vulnerability and we're not transparent with our hurt because we like to give off this appearance that we have things together. Whereas 99.9, 100% of people don't have it together. <laughs> no matter how, what they talk and no matter how they made the image and portrayal that comes across, we don't have it together. And so we have to learn to be authentic with being, with, with not being perfect. And that's okay. It's okay for us to not be there. It's okay to not be okay. We just need to be transparent in that. And when we're transparent and honest with ourselves, and listen, listen, I'm I've struggled with with I can, hey I struggle with veganism, but you know what? I'm trying to do better, and I hope we can do better together. Like I, I can respect that way much more than me saying to you, you shouldn't eat this way because it can kill you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Knowing that I struggle knowing that what I'm about to eat. Like, as long as we're honest with ourselves, that can go, that in actual reality can probably go farther along than you even having worked it on out on yourself. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much for sharing this. I think this was really interesting. I feel like I, I have clarity and perspective around these issues and how they relate to each other. And again, how, how to uh, handle myself better because of it. So thanks for exploring this topic with me, Greg. Sure thing, man. Thanks for having me.